This episode of the Feminist Survival Project is sponsored by Christmas Kisses from My Cowboy, a new anthology from Kensington Books. This Christmas, the best kind of trouble comes in threes. Three stories of holiday romance from three best-selling authors beloved in their genre for writing strong, adventurous heroines. And three cowboys who are ready for love, whether they know it yet or not. We got Mistletoe Cowboy by Diana Palmer, Blame It on the Mistletoe by Marina Adair, and Mistletoe Detour by Kate Pierce. It is everything you want from a contemporary cowboy Christmas story. We have a horse whisperer. We got rescued in a power outage. We've got stuck in a snowstorm. We have a pet pig. It's everything you could want. Christmas Kisses for My Cowboy is available wherever books are sold. Find out more at kensingtonbooks.com. better now you can't hear traffic anymore sorry no you know so one of the things we're going to talk about is there's a difference between a disappointed hope a frustrated expectation and a betrayal of trust mm-hmm. and this was just a frustrated expectation <laughs> yeah and it was such a small expectation it's only a small amount of frustration okay anyway <laughs> uh for those wondering we had to restart recording because some shit went wrong in amelia's side technically Alrighty! Welcome to another episode of the Feminist Survival Project 2020. It's a podcast for feminists who feel overwhelmed and exhausted by everything they have to do and still worry that they're not doing enough. I am Emily Nagoski. I'm Amelia Nagoski, and see how much better my sound is now I fix my microphone. It is. That was worth it. Yeah. We had only gotten basically this far in the episode. Yeah. So, here we are. Okay. Our topic today is trust. This is a subject that I have been teaching about uh, in my the classroom and other places for almost two decades at this point. It's really important. It's weird to me that we haven't done an episode about it yet because it's so essential. Because understanding the nature of trust means that you understand the nature of betrayal. And that is an emotion that is very difficult to cope with. It's the quintessential example of an emotion that the way to deal with the feeling itself is separate from the process of dealing with the problem that caused the feeling. Yeah. Right. And then I think at the end, I'd like to tie that into gaslighting and the feeling of being gaslit as a betrayal too. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So let's start out with sort of the nerdy sciencey way of thinking about it. This is the trust game. When uh, you read game theory, behavioral economics, they do this with money. We're going to do it with cupcakes because cupcakes is more fun to say over and over, which we're going to be doing. Alrighty. So here we are. Amelia and I are in the basement of a psychology building on a college campus. We're in a little laboratory and the researchers have given us four cupcakes. Actually, they've given me four cupcakes and a choice. I can take my four cupcakes and go home, thank you very much, or I can give any number of cupcakes I choose to Amelia. And any cupcake I give to Amelia magically becomes three cupcakes altogether. So here I have these four cupcakes. If I opt to give Amelia one cupcake, how many cupcakes does Amelia have? Amelia? I'm letting people answer. Three, right? And if I if and and I have three. And if I give Amelia two cupcakes, how many cupcakes do I have? <laughs> Four. Wait, six. Wait, what? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Are you even listening? <laughs> I was looking up the movie Gaslight. <laughs> to, 
See what year it was. You were not listening. <laughs> See, I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed because I had a hope. And this actually goes to the 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 sort of uh, more biological approach that you might trust, which is <laughs> Sue Johnson says, "Are you there for me? Are you there for me?" Is the quintessential trust question and uh the answer right then for amelia was no she was not <laughs> you've been there. there for quite a while without me so i was like <laughs> i can check out what you're like here out i got plenty of time before she's gonna like need a thing from anyway actually in entitled kate mann's new book she goes all the way back to the play i had not realized that there was an there original was play. play yeah i did not know that well, uh, I did because I'm currently looking at the Wikipedia page. Oh, Jesus God. God. <laughs> Patrick Hamilton's play Gaslight from 1938. Anyway. Are you done? <laughs> sure. <laughs> really, the question is, are you there for me? Because that is the biological underpinning of the emotion of trust. And the process of the cupcakes is a metaphor anyway, but it's also literally how people study trust. Yes, this is this is how people study trust, but it is a metaphor for... You'll see. Okay, okay. so... I have these four cupcakes and a choice. If I choose to give Amelia any cupcake, it turns into three cupcakes. If I have four cupcakes and I give Amelia two cupcakes, how many cupcakes do I have now? It's times three, right? Yes. Six. No. How many cupcakes do I have? <laughs> two? How's what? your brain fog? Hey. <laughs> <laughs> four minus two. Four minus two, Amelia. <laughs> I thought you were after the thing when it changed. Four minus two is two. I'm good at math. <laughs> I don't know whether we should keep all this. <laughs> Maybe we should just go through it real quick again. All right. Here we are in a psychology lab. We have four. I have four cupcakes and a choice. If I I can take my four cupcakes and go home, or I can give you any number of cupcakes I choose. I'm gonna address you directly so that you know that I am speaking to you, and it's your job to respond. This is what we call a normative expectation yeah. in both uh, philosophy and psychology. A normative expectation. You can go back to the little monitor episode uh, and just think about what expectancies are about. Is your idea of how things are supposed to be and how uh, rapidly things are supposed to go. And people who are listening to this podcast are like, I had an expectation that you would move into the content more fluidly and quickly. And their <laughs> little monitors, they're like going, God, and they're just going to fast forward 30 seconds. Okay. So normative expectation. <laughs> talking directly to Amelia. Like if in the earlier in the episode, when you were like, I'm going to be talking about this. This is before we had to restart, but you were like, I'm going to just talk a lot. And I was like, okay, she's just going to talk a lot, which is when I thought I'll have time to look up. Anyway, now the normative expectation that's been explicitly set for me is I have to listen and do math. <laughs> My assumptions did not come out of nowhere. I was given information and I was following it. Oh, Emily's just going to talk? I can check out. <laughs> what? <laughs> And I have congestion because it's fall uh, and I'm allergic to fall. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of allergic to outside. I'm allergic to Massachusetts. So I have this wheezy horror show happening. Not cut right. off. Okay, lots of things for Rich to cut so far. <laughs> Four cupcakes. 
four cupcakes and a choice. Mm -hmm. And for every one cupcake I give you, it magically transforms into three cupcakes. So if I have these four cupcakes and right. I give you one cupcake, yes. how many cupcakes do I have now? You gave me one, now you have three. And how many do you have? I have three also. Great. And if I give you two... Three. One times three is three. That is correct. Well done. Ding! Special bonus gold star for you. If I give you two cupcakes, how many cupcakes do I have? Still two. And how many do you have now? I have six. Okay. Now, if I decide to give you any cupcakes, then you have a choice too. You can either take those cupcakes and go home. Thank you very much. Or you can give any number of cupcakes you choose back to me. And then the game is over. And that's it. So if I trust you a little, like, hey, this is crazy. I just met you. But I'm going to... I'm going to go ahead, and even though I've got these four cupcakes, and I could just take these four cupcakes and go home, I'm going to take a little bit of a risk. I'm going to go ahead and give you two cupcakes, which means you now have... Six. Right. And suppose you are worthy of the trust that I just gave you. Mm-hmm. What will you do in return? I'll give you some back. How many might you give me back? Let's see. I've got six, and you've got two. So if I give you two more, you'll have four, and I'll have four. Yeah, exactly. And then the game is over. But imagine a world where, like, we might ever have to come back and play this game again. Am I going to be willing to give you any cupcakes? Probably. And uh, suppose it were reversed. If we played the game again and you got the four cupcakes and the same rules applied, would you take the four cupcakes and go home? No. You would be willing to trust me at least a little, right? Mm -hmm. Sure. That's the reciprocal nature of trust. So this is a one-off game that could build the foundation for future trust. Now, if I'm like a really trusting person and I get these four cupcakes and I just hand over all four cupcakes, how many cupcakes do I have now? I flaked out again. I'm sorry, brain fog. I gave you four. You gave me four now. I have twelve. Ah, no, how many do I have? <laughs> oh, you gave me four, you have none, but I have twelve. I'm excited about the twelve cupcakes I have. Exactly. Now. So uh, here we are. Yeah. I trusted you big time. I handed over all of my cupcakes. I took all the risk. I went from four cupcakes as a surprise gift to zero cupcakes. You're over there with twelve cupcakes. And if you are fully worthy of the trust that I just gave you, what do you do? I give you back half. Six. And we both have yeah. six. Now we both have six. Perfect trust with perfect trustworthiness maximizes cupcakes. We go from zero cupcakes to six cupcakes each. Yeah. With an investment of four cupcakes from the researchers, mm-hmm. we end up walking out of that with six cupcakes each. Mm-hmm. That's pretty great, right? Mm-hmm. And what we're laying out here is a metaphor. The cupcakes symbolize everything that we give and receive in relationships. So what are some of the things, Amelia, that we give and receive in relationships? Attention. Time. Compassion. Money. Compassion, that's actually going to be, God damn it, the most important one, obviously. Of course. Turning toward difficult feelings with kindness and compassion is uh, the most important thing that we give and receive in relationships. The best cupcake ever. And this is where... I'm going to insert here Sue Johnson's approach to talking about trust. Sue Johnson is a therapist and the founder of Emotionally Focused Therapy. She grounds her therapeutic approach 
in attachment theory, which is the biological foundation of love and relationships. It's in chapter four of Come As You Are, if you want to read some of the science. Also, Sue Johnson's books, Hold Me Tight and Love Sense are great resources if you're interested in learning more about how trust works in relationships and how you can increase trust and repair trust when it's been betrayed. So she says the foundational question of trust is, are you there for me? And when the answer to that question is yes, that's trust. And the clever thing is that R is actually an acronym. The A stands for emotionally accessible, the R stands for emotionally responsive, and the E stands for emotionally engaged. So this is not just a person like physically being present in the room for you. It is them turning toward you with emotional availability, responsiveness, and engagement. So everybody has times in their relationships when the other person is <laughs> talking uh, and you're going, huh? Mm, uh -huh. And you have no idea what the person is saying because your brain is just full of the things you're thinking about. Mm -hmm. Like we all, we all have those times. That is not being there for the person, even if you are physically there. So trust is those times when a person is like, this is important. This is a big deal. I need you to tune into me and be there with me. Are you there for me? Are you accessible, responsive, and engaged? That's trust. That is the most important cupcake. The cupcake is also money. It is picking the kids up on time. It is taking out the trash when you said you were going to take out the trash. In open relationships, it's waiting to tell me first before you have sex with somebody else if that is the rule that you have negotiated in your relationship, right? The idea is we have expectations, we have boundaries that we set within relationships, and trust is our expectation that people are going to behave according to those expectations, and indeed maximize our well-being when they can. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay, so the part where we talk about the difference between betrayal, so betrayal, what is betrayal? Suppose, let's go back to that laboratory in the basement of the psych ward. Not the psych ward, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> college campus psychology building basement lab amelia and me with the cupcakes i've got these four cupcakes i trust her real big i give her all four mm -hmm. amelia if i have four cupcakes and then i give you all four cupcakes how many cupcakes do i have you have zero cupcakes and you have Tw 12 cupcakes. 12 you have a dozen cupcakes right now yeah and so if you are like shit 12 free cupcakes and you leave you're like i'm gonna take my cupcakes and go home thank you very much how do i feel you are thinking what was i thinking trusting someone with all four of my cupcakes i'll never do that again how do i feel <laughs> you feel betrayed i feel betrayed and i think you were trying to set up something there yeah yeah, yeah, because uh, uh, there was one time I was doing a talk with a group of college students, and I asked this question, which what comes after it is, suppose after the experiment, I go home and I tell the people that I live with, this thing just happened, I had four cupcakes, I gave them to the other person, and they just took them. How would your friends and loved ones feel when you tell them the story? What, what do they say to you? What do they do? And a student in the back says, uh, ask you why you gave away all your cupcakes. 
And I was like, oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> and ever since then, I have put in the caveat, what would your friends and loved ones as their best selves say and do in that moment when they hear you tell that story? Because it is the case. I mean, this right here, victim blaming. Yeah. Why did you trust that person? Why did you go into the room? Yeah. Right? Why are you at that party? And trust is different for different people based on a lot of factors. A little bit of it seems to be temperamental. You're born with a basic sort of willingness to trust. Part of it is attachment style, avoidant versus secure versus anxious. Maybe we should do an episode about attachment. People find it helpful. Okay. And it also depends on your history of like early life history of having trust violated, which of course goes with attachment style. Some people find it easier to trust than others. So the feeling that you have when trust is violated is betrayal. This Amelia walking out with those 12 cupcakes is textbook betrayal. How I feel in that moment is betrayed. And what are some of the things I want to do as a result of having the feeling of betrayal? Slash my tires in the parking lot so I can't drive away with all the cupcakes. I might be angry and seek to retaliate. Yeah. I might even, I mean, if I go to my friends and loved ones and tell the story, they might hunt you down. That's right. Tie you to a chair, eat the cupcakes in front of you, and steal all your baking equipment so that you can never have cupcakes again. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. I might have fantasies like that. I am angry and I am hurt and the world doesn't make sense. Right? Mm -hmm. Now, the only time it's actually appropriate for your actions around betrayal to be retaliatory and especially retaliatory at a larger scale and public is if you are actually the mafia. Mm -hmm. That is, that's what that's for. Because mm -hmm. what that is, is an advertisement to everybody else. If you betray my trust, you'll end up with a horse head in your bed. Very specific, but yes. But like bad things will happen to you if you betray my trust. The only time that you need that. And when you witness that happening in a social dynamic, that's a sign that that's a relationship you want to avoid. If it's one specific person that that's coming from, mm -hmm. that is a person with whom you are not, no, big flags do not get any redder than somebody who joyfully, placidly tells a story of retaliation, mm -hmm. of revenge. Mm -hmm. Mandy Patinkin has been talking about this a lot. He spends, Mandy Patinkin plays Inigo Matoya in Princess Bride, yeah. whose whole thing is uh, the six-fingered man killed his father. And so Inigo Montoya trains to be a sword fighter to go kill the man who killed his father. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. And that's the line that like every day of his life, somebody says, say the line, right? Like he's super famous for it. Well, but these it, days, it, to be fair, in part, they set that up in the movie because he says it over and over and over. Yes. Yeah. And he says it over and over during the big, big cathartic scene. Yeah. Like, I understand why it's a big deal. Yeah. But he himself, because Ted Cruz apparently is a big fan of Princess Bride. Oh, shit. Yeah. So Ted Cruz was sort of upset when the entire cast came back together to do a live reading of The Princess Bride for Wisconsin Democrats. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Ted Cruz felt betrayed. 
by the Princess Bride. And Mandy Patinkin's message to Ted Cruz was, listen to what happens to Indigo Montoya. The most important message in his story is not, you killed my father, prepare to die. It's, you know, I have been in the revenge business so long, now I don't know what to do with my life. Yeah. That revenge is ultimately empty. Yeah. It does, it deals, it is a reaction to the emotion, mm -hmm. but doesn't actually fix the problem mm -hmm. on an emotional level. Like he doesn't get his father back and that's the wound. That's the real injury. It right. doesn't solve the problem. Yeah, like uh, he gets offered, you know, I'll give you riches, power, whatever you want. And he says, I want my father back, you son of a bitch. Exactly. Like, I think that's probably the most important sentence because what it's talking about is that that anger that drives his entire life, the quest for revenge, is underpinned by grief. Yeah. Which is what happens for us when we want revenge, when we seek retribution. That is the angry mask that declares, no, no, you've got control over this situation. You're not going to plunge into a pit of bleak loss and helpless despair. You, you don't have no way to fix the problem that has now been created. There is a way. You can go hurt that person the way they hurt you, and then you're going to feel better. That's not true. That is the lie that, that our brains work. tell us. Yeah. When our trust has been betrayed, our brains suggest that if we hurt the other person the way they hurt us, we're going to feel better. No, all it's going to do is take away the mask that you are wearing over the grief of the loss. Yeah. When you sustain a relationship with a person who has betrayed your trust, you're looking for a few things. You want that person to experience true remorse. They want to feel, you, you want them to feel bad about the impact they had on you. You want their acknowledgement that they're going to try real hard not to do it again. And you want some degree of confidence that they are capable of not doing it again. Mm -hmm. When those conditions are met, and I'm, this is all just like a superficial like reconstruction of what the science says, then you can begin rebuilding trust in a relationship. When any of those things are missing, you can sustain a relationship with that person, but the relationship is changed permanently. It's like the relationship was in an accident and it had permanent injuries that you just need to live with now. You need to find a different way of living in that relationship because there's been permanent changes. Yeah. Does all that make sense? Yeah. Now I want to talk about a Brandon Sanderson book because there's no Brandon Sanderson book that doesn't summarize any major life experience. Anyway, sure. That's how I feel about Rumi. Yeah. 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 Um, there's a trilogy with a, also like a short story. So there's like a one, a 1.2 and a two and a three. And in book one, eight-year-old boy lives in a world where all of a sudden human beings are developing superpowers for reasons no one understands. It seems like all the people who get superpowers, though, become evil. Like, there are no heroes. They're just all villains. And his father's like, no, no, no. Where there's villains, there'll be heroes. So inevitably, his father is killed by one of these super people. And uh, so this eight-year-old boy spends the next 10 years preparing to get revenge, to, to kill this superhero named Steelheart. And that's book one. At the end of book one, well, spoiler, but like he wins. He kills the superhero. And now we have two more books in the series. And he spends two thirds of the entire series looking back at that and going, should I have done that? It turns out that there might have been some other options. And now, I mean, it's not like I have my father back and, and everything's so much more complicated now. And he just like digs himself into this deep, deep hole. It takes him two more books to get out of. 
Most authors would have left it at the end of book one. He gets his revenge and maybe he's like, oh, I'm not quite over it yet, but at least I've met these people and now I have this new family. Um, but no, yeah. Brandon Sanderson just sets up in book one and book two and three is where the actual, you know, experience happens where he reflects on what has happened and sees that there could have been other alternatives. And because most of us live our lives in book two and three, right? Most right. of us look back and reflect and have to live with the consequences of our actions in the past. Right. We tell the story of book one because it is very satisfying. Mm hmm. But it, it's not something that we can do in real life. It, this is another example of why the stories are full of magic is because the thing that happens in the story, it feels satisfying to follow the story. But in the story, they let the obtaining of revenge make the person feel better. And that's where it all falls apart. That's where it's not reality. That is lazy fucking storytelling. Mm hmm which I think you go back to Brandon Sanderson because he's not a lazy storyteller. But yeah. for example, so there's this very sort of famous image from Game of Thrones where I never watched Game of Thrones. I don't have HBO, but like the blonde lady, bad shit happened to her. And so she blew some shit up. Mm -hmm. this, I'm not talking about the very end of it, somewhere in the middle of it. And there's a shot of her like riding away with the explosion happening in the background. And she gets a sort of like smug, smirky expression on her face mm -hmm. as if, blowing some shit up has now healed the wound that was inflicted on her yeah, no no yeah it's lazy fucking storytelling yeah in book two of this series when he's discovering that there are alternatives an epic two epics actually they're called epics the people with superpowers end up hurting some other people and uh and he made friends with one of the people that gets hurt and in book three she's like okay i get that you're all enlightened now but you got revenge you got to kill steelheart and i'm supposed to just I'm supposed to just not? What about yeah. my feelings? Yeah. Yeah. Brandon Sanderson's a good storyteller. So does the person say, let me tell you, I got the revenge and it didn't help? Oh, yeah. They've totally had that conversation. They're good friends and they talk about all that stuff. And she knows that it's not going to help, but she still wants it. Sure. Yeah. Well, she, yeah. So when it comes to betrayal and revenge and that feeling that we have and the urge to do something, in the same way that the experience of feeling not enough is just one of the masks that loneliness wears like what you're actually feeling and what you want isn't the thing that your sort of constructed self says you want you think you want to work harder and conform what you actually need is to connect more deeply with the people around you and of course we believe that getting revenge is going to make us feel better we're, we're surrounded by stories about exactly that i hope that this description of sort of the biology of what's happening that what you're experiencing really the desire for revenge in the face of betrayal is a mask that grief wears that what will actually heal the feeling is healing the grief is mourning going through that dark and difficult tunnel day after day over and over and look this is probably just a coincidence but one of the bad guy epics in these stories is a former rock band star and the name of his band was weaponized cupcake so there you go. It's probably a coincidence. <laughs> yeah. Or he might have read our book that came out a year and a half ago and been like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to build in a deep cut reference to this book about women's stress. I'm to just... a book that was published how long ago? Uh, I don't actually remember. Here, I'll look so. it up, though. I'm looking it up. I'm not paying attention to you for a minute. It was released in 2014. Okay. So. 
So, so no. But I'm just saying, like, if you want to, it's care, a coincidence. If you want to understand the metaphor, like, weaponized cupcake. Weaponized dude, cupcake, dudes. That's that's the nature of betrayal. I remember sitting in my office in probably 2010, making the PowerPoint slides of the cupcakes with like the four cupcakes on one side and then an arrow, and then like the cupcakes would animate appear on the screen one by one, yep. depending on the number. And then yeah, like that. And I use I just use those slides over and over and over again because it took me an hour mm-hmm. to animate the cupcakes. To animate the cupcakes. So, okay. betrayal. You want to talk about gaslighting. Uh, yeah, the, the feeling of being gaslight is essentially the feeling of betrayal. Because how gaslighting happens is you give me all four of your cupcakes. They turn into magically into 12 because you shared them with me. And I start eating cupcakes right in front of you. And you're like, what the fuck are my cupcakes? I'm like, you never had any cupcakes. These are my cupcakes. What are you talking about? And I do this in such a way. And I surround you with other people who agree with me and who support my story. And uh, I create propaganda and media images that tell the story of how I've always had these 12 cupcakes and you never had 12 cupcakes. And what are you talking about? I think it's, it's, I think it's not, you never had the cupcakes. It was, well, you gave them to me. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah, absolutely. That's better. You gave, you gave me cupcakes. What are you talking about? Because we walk into it with the assumption that the rules of the game are, we are told that the rules of the game are. Yeah. You, can, you give I, a person a thing and they turn to people three. are good and will respond. And that person is out there declaring, yeah. no, the rules of the game are you gave them to me yeah. and now they're mine. Yeah. And like, you don't even have a right to feel betrayed. Why do you feel betrayed? Why are you mad You gave though? me the cupcakes. Yeah. Yeah. You gave them to me. Yeah. No, those, it's not the rule of the game. In fact, when they do the research, I told you perfect trust plus perfect trustworthiness maximizes cupcakes. They're the ones who are fucked up and broken and not doing it the way human beings are designed to do it. Mm-hmm. For the record, the evidence shows that people who feel entitled to take and have anything they are given are doing it wrong. Except there, there is some evidence in the world to show that the people who take all 12 cupcakes end up with the most cupcakes and therefore it increases their access to positions of power. That's why gerrymandering works. Yeah. That's why propaganda works. This is, so insert human giver syndrome here. People who are human beings have been entitled by human giver syndrome to take and have anything they want. And as I say repeatedly, the most important thing I learned in the process of writing the book is to recognize the feeling of giving to someone who feels like the more I give to them, the more entitled they feel to take from me. Mm-hmm. That's a bad relationship and I should disengage from it and reallocate those resources to relationships with fellow givers who, when I give to them, they feel motivated to give in return. Yeah. Those I, are people who are going to exchange cupcakes with me. I want to just rewind a little bit and give gaslighting a little bit of context because I'm, sure. I'm teaching this book in one of my classes and my students had no idea what gaslighting was. Some of them was like, I've heard this term before, but I have no idea what or why or whatever. It's from a play which was turned into a movie. The movie is really famous from 1944 called gaslight and uh, it's ingrid bergman and uh you know charles boyer and she's living with him and he starts flickering the gas lights they don't have electricity yet the lights are gas so they start flickering and she's like what the hell the lights and he's like no 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 they're not flickering what are you talking about you're just imagining it and um, they go through stuff like this over and over again like she loses something and he's like no what are you talking about you never had that and uh, she's like she's doubting her own sanity she's questioning her own ability to perceive reality in the world accurately and she feels 
confused and doubting herself, but also like really mad at this person who's trying to do this to her. And what it takes for her to get through this is for someone to come in from the outside and say, no, 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 you are not crazy. You are not losing your mind. Those gaslights are flickering. You are correct. And kind of pull her out of it and, and confirm her beliefs. So that's where the term comes from, gaslighting, and how it works. I mean, there is a like a specific psychological definition of like how an individual treats another individual in a relationship. But it's also a thing that happens at a large scale, social, cultural level when people in positions of power and authority deny that their power and authority results in oppression to people who are oppressed and being like, oh my God, you're oppressing me. And they're like, no, we're not. So there's a detail about this story that I didn't notice until I read about it in Kate Mann's new book, Entitled, which is another fairly short, pretty dark book, but I highly recommend it. It is much less dark in its ultimate conclusion than Down Girl. So the way Kate Mann summarizes it is that the reason the gas lights are flickering is that the husband is going up into the attic and turning on the lights there, the gas lights up there, mm -hmm. which affects the system. The gas lights in the street flicker because gas is being channeled up to the attic. Power is being redistributed, you mean? Yes. Mm -hmm. And she sees that and she begins to recognize like what that flickering means is he's up there in the attic rooting through stuff because she's wealthy he married her it turns out for her money to get access to her stuff and he's like no no that's not what i'm doing that's there you didn't see that you i'm not see taking your power no no right i'm not taking what is yours <laughs> right mm -hmm. uh, so i think that's an important detail in the story that he is knowingly denying not just that her senses are saying what they're saying, but all of the behaviors that underlie the thing she is noticing. Mm -hmm. Like you are, you are noticing the crime I'm committing. No, 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 that's not what you saw. Because if you saw that, you'd be noticing the crime I'm committing. Mm -hmm. And there's an interesting power dynamic that happens where the people who are ultimately in charge, like the husband in the story, convince other people of the same narrative in order to have control over them. So we buy the gaslit story. We believe the person who's doing the gaslighting and we participate in reinforcing it among other people, not gaslighting them, but because we truly believe the thing. Like, you must be crazy. We believe you're crazy because he says you are. Yeah. And he's in the, in the position to be believed. <sighs> I wish people who are in positions to be believed could actually be trusted. Some of them can. Yeah. Except that we live in a world that is mediated in ways our brains are not wired to understand. Yeah. Like our, <laughs> our brains are not wired to understand the nature of a tweet or even a speech is not to communicate all the ideas a person has and all the knowledge a person has and all the point of view that a person has, it communicates a little piece of it. And so if we show up and hear that piece of it represented and we say, but what about all these other pieces? Like you didn't, you didn't, you, I, I trusted that you were gonna like talk about me in this speech and you didn't talk about me in this speech. Therefore, you're not there for me. Ah. That's why trust is in relationships instead of in media. Does that make sense? Yes. 
because it's about the reinforcement over and over again. It's not just the one cupcake game. It is coming back time and again and mutually exchanging cupcakes and the cupcakes expand and expand. Yeah. But when the, you know, leader of the nation says, don't let COVID dominate your life. And I've been sick for three and a half months. Like I should not be letting that dominate my life. Like, especially because that's a thing. That's a, that's a sentence. That's an idea that runs through my own head. Like I shouldn't be letting this dominate my life. And here comes this motherfucker. Exactly. Saying it out yeah. loud. Part of you is like, he's, yeah. And I'm like, God, he's right. This is, no, he's, yeah, exactly. You're totally being, and he, I, I don't know whether to give him credit for knowing that it's a lie. That he is deliberately manipulating you and everyone else. Yeah, or if he's just to, in denial. So that you will not notice the crime he's committing. Yeah, I mean, people did notice because people were like, my family member died and I'm not supposed to let that dominate my life. Yeah, and then there's the profiles of people who show up to rallies and stuff and they do know people who died or who have long haul COVID and they're like, you know, these things happen. Yeah. What? What? It's not COVID. What? It wasn't inevitable. It's because of large-scale systems that we decided we were going to let it happen. So this is the point at which I want to talk about the distinctions that there are when your trust is violated, you feel betrayed. When your hope, like if you hope the weather will be nice for your vacation, and then it is not, what emotion do you feel? Disappointed. Yes. Disappointment is the emotion that you have when your hope is not met. Because as we said in the hope episode, hope is about your assessment of the probability of a desired outcome. And that assessment of a probability justifies your hope, right? So when the thing you were hoping for that you assessed a probability might happen, when it doesn't happen, you feel disappointed at a scale with, you know, how important the thing was and how high your hopes were. That's different from expectation. Like if it's not a probability you assess, but it's an expectation, you're like probability 99 plus percent, it's going to happen. When, if you expect the weather to be sunny on your vacation and it is not, Amelia, what emotion do you feel then? Frustrated? Yeah, exactly. You feel frustrated. You had an expectation that was not met. And so you feel frustrated. This is what happens when we have to wait in line for a long time. You don't feel disappointed when you have to wait in line for a long time, the longer than you expected to have to wait in line. You feel frustrated. And you don't feel betrayed when you have to wait in line for a long time. You feel frustrated. Betrayal is the thing that happens when your trust is violated, when the answer to the question, are you there for me, is no. I have to say, the distinction between disappointment and frustration is a nuanced one. And I have to say, I have at times felt fr felt betrayed when standing in line because there's a thing that says this is how long this line is going to be. And then it's like double that. Oh, they lie. Yeah. When there is a thing that tells you it's not just your internal normative expectation. Right. They, they established the normative expectation. You said X and it turned out to be X times two. Yeah. And when a thing you is betrayed really me. Yeah. 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 Because that's a lie. You lied to me. And usually that's a thing that was really important because you were standing in line for it. See, I'm mostly thinking of Disney rides. Okay. Those are, those are... Yes. I would feel betrayed a little bit like a spark of betrayal if a Disney line took twice as long as they said it would. But they're very reliable, though. See, Disney's very reliable. They set a normative expectation. I trust their, 
their expectations. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a phenomenon that I've even people who are concerned about privacy and monitoring are willing to have Disney track their movements on a GPS device you wear on your wrist. It's called a magic band. Mm -hmm. And you can pay for stuff with it. Like your credit card is on there. You can get into your hotel room on it. You get to boop your band. You boop your band and it tracks your movements. It knows which land in Disney World you are in. Yeah. And it will send you opportunities, push notifications. Yeah. Because it knows where you are. Yeah. And even people who are really interested in privacy trust the system because for whatever reason, people trust Disney the corporation should they (laughs) people do but it's a phenomenon that large-scale corporations have to take on is they need to build a relationship a reciprocal relationship with individuals yeah and precisely how that works i do not know there are people who study it for a living yeah this is where this cupcake research comes from yeah it goes from just individuals to organizations yeah like how do they build trust relationships with clients and customers. So speaking of magic, I kind of want to talk about how those cupcakes transform from one into three once they get shared. Because that's, I mean, that's an experimental protocol. That's an arbitrary decision someone made. But there is a metaphor that translates into real life. Yes. Which is that when you share a cupcake, which is a metaphorical cupcake, which is your kindness and compassion towards someone's difficult feelings, when you transfer them to someone else. There is a thing that happens. People are afraid if I if I spend too much time giving to someone else, I'm going to have nothing left for myself. But there is a thing that happens that when we share this kind of loving attention with each other, it does get multiplied. It does not drain us in the end because it establishes this trusting relationship where we're going to get back. And then it sets up an ongoing process where every time they give to you, it gets tripled again and you have more to share. Yes, which is why the separate distinction between self-care and caring for others is a false distinction. The real distinction is between caring for people who feel entitled to take what you give and people who feel motivated to connect with you and share in return. I gave you four cupcakes and now you have 12 and you give me six. Well, just the bliss of having had that interaction turns my six cupcakes into 24. And now I'm going to give you 12 of them. And now, right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, what a self-care argument would be like, you need to keep those cupcakes for yourself. Yeah, keep your cupcakes. No, girl. When the most generous thing you can do is give all your cupcakes away Mm -hmm. to a person who's going to receive them and be like, six fucking cupcakes for you and six for me. And we did it. Yeah. And what that achieves is a, you know, increase in cupcakes in perpetuity. Yeah. Which is why the fundamental answer in our book is that the cure for burnout is not self-care. It's all of us caring for each other. It's the reason why connection is the second to last chapter where we talk about trust and the bubble of love. It is the reason why human giver syndrome ultimately is the enemy in our story because it weaponizes giving. It says that if you trust, you deserve to be taken advantage of. And that story breaks the rules of trust and it breaks what trust does for us as a species. So if you're feeling crazy these days, it's because humanity is broken at a pretty large scale. Mm -hmm. 
And I, my goal in talking about the science was to create a context that allows us to better understand the nature of the crazy we feel these days, to understand the disappointment, frustration, and betrayal. The relationship with gaslighting is extremely important and that the solution to betrayal isn't revenge, not in terms of your emotions. Maybe at the level of international politics, it should be, I don't know, that's not what I do, but I know that at the level of human beings and emotions in relationship and in yourself, the cure isn't to hurt the person who betrayed your trust. Mm -mm. Like putting Trump in jail is not going to undo the damage that got done. Mm -mm. I want my father back, you son of a bitch. It's not gonna do that. Yeah. yeah. So recognizing what is the feeling underneath the betrayal? No. Like what is this? Trump in jail might be the correct path. It might be the just and legal thing to do, but it's not gonna heal us as a nation. Exactly. Yeah, it addresses the problem that caused the damage, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe, but it doesn't heal the damage. Heal the damage. Right. It addresses the cause without healing. And I say this to survivors all the time that they can go through a judicial process, they can report the crime and go through a trial, and don't imagine that a conviction of your perpetrator is going to be the thing that heals you. Mm -hmm. And a lot of survivors choose not to go through that process because the process itself just keeps them stuck yeah. in the pain. Yeah. Especially because it is not a system that's like super supportive and helpful and healing and caring for survivors. Nope. Yeah. So there's the judicial system and then there's like the healing system, which happens in your body and it happens in connection with people who are safe. The moral of the story is... Trust creates energy mm -hmm. in the context of trustworthiness. Trust is part of what it means to be a human being. It will make you well. It will help heal your burnout and make you feel less exhausted and overwhelmed when you show up and help other people who feel delighted that you showed up and helped instead of feeling entitled to take more because you gave some. Yeah. And that is this episode of the Feminist Survival Project 2020. I'm Emily Nagoski. I'm Amelia Nagoski. If any of this was written, it was written by us. You can read about it in chapter six of Burnout. If any of there's any music, it was by Amelia. Can we do the Why Won't It Fucking Work song? Because I feel like that's about betrayal. I have not finished it. Can you finish it today? I will finish it today. I record it, yeah. Okay. So maybe the Why Won't It Fucking Work song is about frustration of normative expectation. But I think we have relationships with our stuff. Technology. With yeah. our technology. Absolutely. And when it is not there for us, and we feel betrayed. Especially some people really feel like their stuff is a person. Just has not shown up for them in the way that it was supposed to. Yeah. You promised me you were going to be there for me. Yeah, they named and you aren't their stuff. So, in honor of the relationships we have with our technology, why won't it fucking work? Thanks for listening. Is it plugged in? Did I turn it on? Why won't it fucking work? Are the cables old? Is the connection loose? Why won't it fucking work? So annoyed, so annoyed. Why won't it fucking work? Is my sound source selected? Is my webcam on? Why won't it fucking work?
Did I join with audio or click on mute? Why won't it fucking work? I'm so annoyed, so annoyed. Why won't it fucking work? Is my Bluetooth paired or should I just reboot? Why won't it fucking work? Is my Wi-Fi shit? Is someone streaming too? Why won't it fucking work? Oh yeah, I'm so annoyed, so annoyed. Why won't it fucking work? I recognize my frustration is rooted in my implicit understanding that the struggle between humanity and technology and our inevitable failure to control our own devices is a metaphorical representation of humanity's struggle to control the world around us. And my rage comes not only from expectations unmet and promise unfulfilled in this moment, but my existential dread that my success in life is not really within my own control. Every time I think I know what to do, it never fucking works. I reset what I expect, then something new goes wrong. It never fucking works. Still I try, still I try. Someday I'll make it work. The Feminist Survival Project 2020 is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die.